First swagger would enter the air, he'd pull up, he'd pull up, he'd say, bubbling right, turning right, he would turn right, the next glider would come up behind him and turn left. The second guy would sample the air to the left, the first guy would sample the air to the right, the third guy would get to see who did better. So at the end of the first turn, who was higher? Then the third guy would come in and just core the, the thermal on the first try. On that day, um, the only good conditions were in the Black Forest. Yeah, and <laughs> it was a very nice fly. Completely relaxed, high base, strong thermos. Um, and I had an average speed of 96 km per hour, which is not bad for an LS1 in Germany. <laughs> This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. You know, I know life gets crazy, so we are truly happy that you take the time to join us each and every episode. And I really appreciate you sharing the podcast with your friends. You know, we have another great episode lined up for you today. We will be hearing from two guest pilots. That's right. First, we're going to head over to the soaring capital of America, Harris Hill. Going to be chatting with our first guest pilot, David McMasters. Now, David comes from a large family with lots of aviation background, which he will tell us about and share some of those soaring stories at Harris Hill and other parts of the world. David also competed at the Junior Worlds in the Czech Republic this summer. So he has a lot to share with us. Later on this episode, we're going to chat with last year's OLC Rookie of the Year, Laura Stern. Now, Laura, she flies out of Offenburg Gliderport, located on the western edge of the Black Forest there in Germany. I really enjoyed hearing her stories, and I know you're going to as well. Now, stick around after our guest pilots for another super informative segment from our friend Sergio. Always appreciate his segments. Now, Sergio's segment is titled Deviation this time. But right now, let's join our first guest pilot, David McMaster, for episode 128 on Soaring the Sky. David McMaster, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Happy you could join me today. Looking forward to hearing about your journey. Hey, Chuck, I just want to say, um, you know, first of all, I'm happy to be on. I've listened to your podcast a bunch before, and I, I know that it's uh, pretty spread out through the soaring community, so I'm stoked to be a part of it. As far as me and, and my story goes, I'm 22 years old. Uh, I've been soaring. I've been flying since I was 13. I, I got my start at Harris Hill as a club in upstate New York. My grandfather, Roy McMaster, pretty big in the soaring community. He himself held a, held a couple of world records on the, the ridges on the East Coast here. Uh, he got my father, my uncle started into it. And they started at Harris Hill. They started in gliders, and they are both now professional pilots. Uh, my dad has uh, three kids, three sons, me and my two older brothers. We all got our start at Harris Hill, and uh, we are now all also professional pilots. So a ton of aviation in the family and a ton of contest and contest experience in racing in the family. And uh, as the youngest, I've had the chance to, to be able to watch them and help them and learn from them as I grew up, as they grew. Recently, I, I, I've gotten up through my all my glider ratings up to my CFI, and I've done spent a couple summers soaring, uh, or summers instructing soaring, rather. 
professionally, I've I've done a lot of I've gotten all my powered ratings and I'm, I'm on track to be a, an airline pilot here in the next couple of months. Oh, congratulations! That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's it's a lot of work to to get done, and it it'll be a fun full career. As far as soaring goes, I've spent the last three years doing pretty much spending my summers doing soaring, racing gliders. Last year, I I competed in three nationals. The year before that, I spent the whole summer in, in California instructing and, and learning mountain flying and soaring. And this summer, I, I, was, I did a nationals in, in Kansas and uh, the junior worlds as well, which I think we'll get into. But basically, yeah, so, so nine years of soaring. It started out just as summer summer job. You know, I, I was up at Harris Hill when we got out of school from when school started up again. I was there seven days a week before I could really be productive. I was running the line up there. Harris Hill has a, has a very renowned junior program. So to me, at the time, I was just hanging out with my buddies. You know, I, I was just doing what we did. I was right. hooking up gliders. I was running wing. We didn't really think anything of it. You know, it's not until you look back on it and you get to experience and you get to go around and travel and see other clubs that, that you really appreciate how, how awesome their junior program is. You're at Harris Hill, but, but you have no idea the history until, well, like you said later on, but I mean, you knew the history as far as, you know, your family being in it, but I mean, Harris Hill is, I think, kind of a big deal in the soaring community, especially here on the East Coast. Oh, I, you know, like I said, I, I know that now. And conceptually, we all understood it, or we all knew it, being around it. We we have our, our museum, and we have our kind of like statues around town that say the, the soaring capital of America, but you don't really understand what that means until you get to go around and, and see things, you know. But um, that's what I did. I grew up flying with my buddies, soaring together, learning. Finally, we're, we're competing against each other, trying to see who can stay up for an hour, who can stay up for two, three, hanging out, who can do it better, who can do it faster, doing childish things like we're on the radio coming up behind each other, clicking it a bunch, acting like we're shooting each other down or you know, <laughs> right. throwing our... <laughs> Throw, throwing our pee bags at each other, trying to, you know, whatever, <laughs> doing, doing silly kid stuff. You know, we're 15, but then, uh, you know, as I grew up, as I matured, as I got better, I came back and, and was one of the commercial pilots. Harrisville is, uh, is also renowned, is renowned for their junior program, but we're also largely commercial operation. So we, we do 20, 30 minute tours and people come up and buy rides and that sort of thing. And that's what subsidizes the the junior soaring is the rides. So, you know, I, I did all this time. I helped out. I ran line. I moved gliders. And I did did whatever they needed me to do. And then you get more experience. And then I got to give the rides, and that was super cool. I'm I'm a talker. I love sharing aviation. So, so for people to come up and ask for a ride and and ask me how it works, what I'm doing, what I'm seeing, how I feel about it, it was a super fun summer job. And my year there is actually what inspired me to decide to be an airline pilot. I was wishy-washy for it for a little bit, uh, powered stuff. I've, I've loved soaring. You know, soaring's been my niche. It's been my bread and butter. But for powered stuff, um, you know, I was unsure. It, it wasn't quite as familiar to me. So, you know, that summer of soaring and that summer of, of sharing aviation, I was like, all right, you know, I, I don't see my life going any other way. So this is, this is what I'm going to go do. And I went all in and it's paying off now. But so, yeah, I did the, uh, the summer at Harris Hill. The next year, I was an instructor in California. 2018, 
I went to Club Class Worlds with Boyd Willett and I crewed for him. That summer, I was was my first year, uh, was my first contest. It was in 2018. So Region 3, 2018 in Danceville. The next year, 2019, is when my commercial piloting at Harrisville was. 2020 is when I instructed at, at Sky Sailing, Warner Springs in California. 2021, last year, is when I did all my contests. And then this year, 2022, is with more, more racing. And California, I'm sure, alone taught you a lot because it's a different type of soaring than here in the East. Oh, it's insane. It's, it's insanely different. I, I, I didn't even think how different it could be. It, it is really, really strong convergence soaring. So it's a very narrow working band laterally, uh, pretty tall vertically. But then you're also over the mountains. Uh, so any sort of wind, any sort of anything changes the weather, changes the, the air. It's also very localized, you know, so so mountain soaring, just because you have a bunch of time and experience in one set of mountains doesn't necessarily directly transfer to a different set of mountains. So I thought that was super cool was how localized it was. So I've, I've spent my summers doing contests and racing um, and I've spent my, I suppose, my semesters. So everything other than my summers uh, at school and doing powered stuff, oh, nice. powered aviation yeah. stuff. So that's, you know, one way or another has been my life for the past nine years. It sounds pretty awesome and a, a lot of flying and a lot of a lot of learning. And like I said, being in California and being out here, I mean, well, well-rounded, all those competitions. But yeah, I did want to talk a little bit about the recent competition. You were there at the Junior Worlds in the Czech Republic. Definitely want to spend some time on, so you can tell the listeners about your personal experience in competing there. How was that? Incredible. If I had, if I had one word, incredible. So it, it was, um, being on the junior team was something that was a goal that I had made in back in 2017 before I had done any contests. Um, I crewed for, uh, another Harrisville member, Andy Brer in Hobbs, New Mexico. He was going out, he was taking his 20. We were going out to Hobbs, New Mexico for club class. Harrisville itself has a pretty good uh, reputation for, for soaring pilots. I mean, the, the amount of club members there that have competed in world competitions, the amount of my mentors that have competed in world competitions, there, there wasn't really any short of them. It was something that was on my mind. You know, I look at these guys growing up and it's like, all right, how do I do what they do? So I, I went in this contest it was my first real taste of a contest, right? So I, I'd, I'd been around it my whole life. My, my dad flew contests. So even when I was two, three, I was washing wings and sort of thing. But it wasn't until 2017 that I was really cognizant and inspired enough for it to really mean mean anything. So that was the first contest. I was like, all right, Andy, how, how do we do this? What is racing? And he was he was very influential to me to just tell me how it's done, how it's done, how he does it, how other people do it. More, just as importantly, talk to other people and learn from other people. So this whole process, yeah, the, the race was this year, but the whole process started, uh, you know, five years ago, six years ago. So it was um, a long time in the making for me to be able to make this contest. And it wasn't just this summer. So even if you take all of the, the planning and all of the goal setting that I had done, the actual contest for me started last October. 
when I was in got in touch with the the team selection committee, and that's when they were were picking a team and and getting a, a group of young junior members to to go represent the United States. So basically, how they do it is a junior pilot. You need to have two national contests to qualify for a Worlds. You have to have competed in two two nationals, and basically, you need at least sixty percent of the winner score to qualify. From there, it's if, if there are more than enough juniors, it's who's done the best. You know, how many people have done it, they'll take the top three. Right, gotcha. And when they were selecting this this time, they had Noah Ryder, who has, has been to a couple junior worlds himself, and uh, Thomas Greenhill, who, who won standard class nationals in 2021. Yep, right. And me, who who had kind of strung along. So we're, we're doing all our... That's the selection happened in in October, November, uh, and the planning started in late December, and that's really when it all started. So uh, here I am in December. I had spent all last season doing my best to try to qualify. So I had flown three nationals in 2021 with the intent of qualifying. The first one, I didn't get to get a glider that actually qualified for the race. So I went to club class in Chihuahua, and I had to compete as a guest because I couldn't find a club class glider. So I, I still found a glider to fly, but it just didn't it didn't meet the requirements for club class. And I, I flew and I had a good time and I flew well and it was great practice. Then I, I took a, a 27 to 15 meter nationals. I'm flying a good race. I'm making it home every day. One of the days I, uh, I flew over class Charlie airspace, not in it, but over it. I lost all my points for the day plus an extra hundred. So that kicked me right out of the, the 60% requirement for qualifications. Ugh, you know, I'm having a great race, things like that happen. I mean, yeah. you talk to enough contest pilots and they, they, they've all made these sort of mistakes. And then I go to Houston for sports class, having a great race, 90% of the winner score. And I land out on the last day and it, it puts me down to like 65 and it makes me qualified, but you know, only just. Yeah. So right. here I am with, with that was my season. Here I am in December with, with Noah Ryder, who's been to the Worlds a couple times, and Thomas Greenhill, who's who's won it. Uh, well, not won Worlds, won the Nationals. And I'm sitting there kind of feeling like the oddball out. But here I am, you know. I'm, I'm by all means, if have qualified just the same as them. Well, we get into planning, gets into January, and uh, both of them have work. And with all the complications, they, they decided to drop out. So now here I am sitting already feeling kind of underqualified for the race, you know, find, kind of right. feel like I snuck in, but I'm the only one left. And, uh, you know, what? I said, screw it. I'm going, you know, <laughs> right. um, I, I, I was offered the, I was offered to go. I'm going to go. Pete Alexander and Colin Mead, who, who, uh, who are huge. And they were, they were our mentors through all this planning. They were like, Hey David, like we're in, if you're in, but we need to know that you're all in. I was like, okay, you know what? I'm in. From there, it was a lot of logistics. We we had to find a glider, find a trailer, find a car, find a place to stay, talk strategy, get instruments, get a teammate, get get all this equipment and all this stuff. That is, uh, it, it was a very steep learning curve with the fact that these international contests are different sports. It's honestly straight up a different sport than what we race in the States. Yeah. 
it's a lot, a lot of teamwork. It's not just who can go out there and be the best pilot. It's who's the best communicator, who's the best team, who can facilitate a team, who can work with the ground crew, who can work with other pilots, who who can do all these things, who can set up the, the, the radio tower, who can do who can read the weather, who can find a weatherman. It's a it's a really big team effort. Long story short, all that planning, all that goal setting, all that preparation, it was years in the making to to for me to be here, for me to be there. All this outside help. Uh, we find a glider, we find a, a place to stay, we find a car, we, we get all the equipment, all that stuff happens. And we finally... You know, it's it's July of this year, and, and my crew and I, my crew captain and I, um, since it was just the one pilot, we, we decided to condense the crew and captain uh, titles. So uh, Tom Cassetta was, ended up being my crew and my captain. It was kind of a fun dynamic there, because who tells who what to do? Do I tell, <laughs> do I ask for him to do something as my crew, or does he <laughs> ask me to do something as, as my captain? But we find ourselves in Tabor, Czech Republic, in July. Gliders there, trailers there, cars there, everything's set to go. I got instruments from from William Soaring. Um, the the folks out there, the Mace family, were are incredible. Um, I did some work for them as a tow pilot, ride pilot, and uh, I I requested. They're also the ClearNav folks. They they own ClearNav, so. Before I went out there, I was like, all right, I need to bring some instruments because I know my panel is not great. That's another thing we had to sort out was instruments. You know, we rented a glider, but my glider had pretty archaic instruments, so I had to, to bring yeah, my own. Right. But we get up, we get all the way out there with all the equipment, and I, I put it in. And, and Tom and I are in this little camper that we borrowed, and here comes the Brits. They come in. <laughs> they have three pilots per class, so there's club class and standard class. Wow. So they had six pilots. Six crew, a captain for each, a total team captain, wow, and a weatherman. And they mm. brought in. They had tents. They had a big canopy. They had this obnoxiously tall radio antenna, <laughs> and they set up and they took over the entire camp. And here, Tom and I are sitting there, like, you know, this is this is half. This is six days before the contest starts, and we're sitting there thinking, we are outgunned. Like we just, what, what we had very, you know, we didn't really know what to expect. Yeah. Right. My, my whole goal was to go over there and, and fly my best and you know, not to make a fool of myself. So the whole, the whole setup, we finally get set up. I'm, I'm, I spent a day putting my instruments into the panel. I spent a day practicing by myself. I spent a day, I, I made friends as, as people came in and uh, I made really good friends with the Austra uh, South Africans, the Australians, the Dutch, and the, the locals, the Czech, and the Sylvanian. Uh, is Sylvanian Mark Travner is, is who I ended up doing most of my flying with. But the first day I spent, I'd never flown the glider that I was flying. It was real quiet. Great day, but there weren't many competitors left or there yet. And it was just supposed to be an instrument test. You know, I was just supposed to go make up sure that the Clarinavarial worked and make sure everything was good. And I didn't plug the pitot tube into the static tube and the static tube into the TE port, like just to make sure everything was right. 
Well, it, it was very clear right away that my instruments worked. And now I'm sitting there on tow. I get off at 600 meters and I find a thermal right away. It, it takes me up to, you know, 5,000 AGL. And I'm like, all right, like, let's go. Let's go see how this, like, let's, let's go, go do what I came here to do. And that flight ended up being, being 400K. It ended up being a great flight. I, I meshed, gelled really connected really good with the ASW-20 and had a very, very successful flight. You know, it was at that point that all of that, uh, that doubt that I had kind of started to, started to dissipate. It's like, I, you know, I felt comfortable. A couple more practice days. I, pr- I got to practice team flying with the South Africans. That's a whole art, a whole dance, a whole ballet. Got a couple more practice days. And then the first day I had gotten in touch with Mark Travner before I got out there, the Sylvanian. And the first day we flew together, we hadn't, he showed up like the evening before the first day, because this was his, his fourth worlds or something like that. So he, he was ready and prepared and kind of knew what to expect. So he showed up the day before we didn't get to practice, but we, you know, we had chatted and we met up in the air and we sent it together. Right. And I think I came 12th out of, out of 46, the first day. And, mm-hmm. and that day was was huge for me mentally that was the day that that i was finally able to shake all of that you know self-doubt external doubt whatever you want to call it and was like all right you know guys i'm here to mess things up you know i'm here to go i can do this (laughs) these are the best junior pilots in the world and i just beat a bunch of them let's go and then thereafter it it only kind of got better from a flying standpoint, like I, I only got more comfortable. I only got better at communicating with the ground with, with Mark and, you know, some, I didn't get, I, I finished 11th was the best day day that I had. So there were a couple low teens and then there were a couple mid twenties where I didn't fly so well, but you know, I was, I was getting more comfortable. I was personally getting better every day. Unfortunately, so was everyone else. Right. But um, the caliber of soaring was just, just insane. It's a world contest. It's a world's. That's what people tell you, right? But it's different to say it, and it's different to experience it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and I had the luxury to follow tail behind uh, some of these these teams, and I got some of their team frequencies, and I got to listen to what they said, and. The teamwork and collaboration and corroboration and uh, coordination between these pilots was insane. It was, it wasn't, but a couple words here and there, but they knew exactly what they they were on the same page and they would would fly into a thermal right. They they kind of follow trail one two three in a straight line right. or they'd spread out a little bit. First glider would enter the air. He'd pull up. They'd pull up. He'd say bubbling right turning right he would turn right the next glider would come up behind him and turn left the second guy would sample the air to the left the first guy would sample the other right the third guy would get to see who did better so at the end of the first turn who was higher then the third guy would come in and just core the the thermal on the first try so now the other two see that the third person has it perfect and then they would join him and then all three would benefit and then they would move on yeah yeah exactly Nice. They would just do that again and again and again and again. And when then when things got weak, they could separate and sample more air. 
and say, hey, guys, like, I don't have much, but I have a knot, right? But if right. You're, you're low, you're going to take it. So then, then they all move to them, and they all get to work as this one cohesive unit. And I was thoroughly impressed by every team that I got to fly with. Because of that, you know, that's not something we experience in the States. You know, team flying on that scale was awesome. And then the other thing they got to do is they got to radio to their team captain who is on a computer watching everything because everyone has flarm because it's required. Right. And all that flarm goes up and out and onto this website. And then you get to just about live track what everyone is doing from your laptop. So they'd be like, hey, so if they left last, they'd have the luxury of seeing everything in front of them. Yeah, exactly. You know, if they were close enough, I could be like, hey, Tom, what's that gaggle doing? It's like they're climbing at three meter, uh, six knots. And if I'm floundering in two, I can be like, all right, this two definitely isn't worth it. I'm pressing on to get the six. It just was a very, very efficient way to do the sport in a way that I, I knew, but I didn't really understand. You know, similar to the way that growing up at Harris Hill, like I knew that Harris Hill had a, had a very good junior program. I knew that they had all this stuff to offer, but you don't really understand it until you see it, or you don't really understand it until you see how other people do it. So in that regard, I was I was blown away. Not just the caliber, you know, how how good they were able to do it, but the consistency behind it was was very 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 impressive. We had talked, you know, earlier, you were sharing with me that you do have a passion for getting teams together and starting something new actually here in the States, because there's not really any that I know of any per se teams flying here and competing as teams against each other. So can you tell me about that and maybe how we can get it done? Yeah. So team flying as a concept is something I've kind of been intrigued in for a while, intrigued about for a while. But it wasn't really anything I had an outlet for. And it also really wasn't anything I had a a reason to pursue. You know, like I said, I, I had set this goal to be a on the, the U.S. team in one way or another since 2017. In 2018, I got to crew, crew for, for club class worlds. And I got to kind of see it. But you didn't get to live it, you know, being crew on the ground. You see your pilot you know, for a total of maybe, you know, 30 minutes before launch, you see him after, but you don't see him during the day and you don't really get to be, you don't get to really experience the team. But I, I, I had some exposures to it. But again, I didn't have an outlet. I didn't really have a reason. So my primary focus thus far until this summer has been how do I make myself the best pilot I can be? How do I race the, the best I can race? But after this, it is blatantly obvious, painfully clear that we're not doing it right in the States. If our goal is to go to Worlds and compete and be taken seriously on the international circuit, we need a way to be competitive team flying. We need an outlet for this competitive niche and and every contest is individual every contest in the states every nationals is a an individual contest 
And that just isn't how it is internationally. Every conversation I had with any country out there was, yeah, you know, we don't, team flying isn't a thing. And they just kind of looked at me and go, what, what do you mean? <laughs> well, what do you mean? What do you mean? It just, like, it isn't a thing. Like, it's solo. Like, so, yeah. so a pilot flies by himself. How, how do they, you know, how do they do it? You know, they were kind of a bit astounded that it was even possible by yourself. That's how foreign individual flying is to them. In the, in the same concept that team flying is to us. So my, my ultimate, my goal here, you know, I, coming back from Czech, I did well. You know, I placed 26 out of 45 overall. Far better than I really thought I could do. You know, going in, I talked about how kind of unconfident not a great term but lack of a better term unconfident i was in january and december and but coming out of it i flew well i didn't land out i finished every single task and flew with mark travner the Slovenian, for just about every day and about halfway through each flight he we would make a different decision from each other and he would get further away from me and i'd lose him um, but a couple days that we, we stuck together wingtip to wingtip the whole flight. And those were my favorite flights. So cool. It just adds to it. So I get back from, from check and I'm all jazzed and energized. And I did write-ups every day and I, that, that were posted on Facebook and whatnot. And I'm getting texts from people that I've never really met saying, hey, you know, this was, you had great write-ups. I'm, I'm so happy to, that you did this. And I have all this energy and I have all this support. I'm like, you know what? I want to. I want to make a change. I want to make an improvement. So, so I had this idea. It's like, we, well, we have a 15 meter nationals. We have an 18 meter nationals. We have club class, standard class, 18, 20, open. We don't have a team flying nationals. Like I said, we, we don't have an outlet for this competitive itch. You know, like, like I said before, team flying is something that I had considered, but I didn't have any way to practice. I didn't have any way to compare. I didn't really have even a team to look up to. You know, that's that's how anybody in flying gets their start. That's how anybody in life gets gets yeah, going yeah, exactly. is they have mentors. They get to see and observe and learn. And we didn't have anything like that at all. I mean, even on our US teams, the the adult teams, the, the fifteen meter, the club, the whatever, they get to they they try to fly together and practice and all that stuff, but even they don't have a competitive outlet to practice and they don't really have a good platform to share their experiences, their pitfalls, what worked, what didn't, uh, even just their experience. Hey, this is cool. You know, they, they didn't, there's none of that. So my goal is I want to start a team flying contest. I want a national contest in the United States where you can pick teams of two, teams of three, and you race together international rules at a contest. And you race, you get scored as a team, uh, which is slightly different than how it happens in international stuff. But I, I like the concept of getting scored as a team. You you have a reason, you have experience, you have a, an example. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great idea. It makes a lot of sense in the competition part too. Then when you do go to Worlds, you feel like you can compete a lot more than just going in and making a team a few months ahead and you know yeah i mean the the team that won so the the british won club class and the 
in Germany won standard. They've been racing. That team has been racing together for four years. Wow. Like yeah. they have been working together, competing together with the point of, of racing as a team for four years. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. That I just was, was blown away at the lack of preparation that we had not to knock anything we've done. I, I don't mean to, to come across like that because I, I had a lot of help and I, I could not have competed in this race without all the help that I had. And I flew well, but I was an individual pilot. Yeah. And I was limited by the technique and the preparation. And if we want to just send people, just to send people, just to kind of get the experience and go to sport, you know what? Fine. We're never going to do well. But if that's our goal, we will achieve that goal, sending people to, to have a good time and experience it. But as competitors, as pilots, anybody who's a pilot is a competitor, we need to have the next step before worlds and that just in my opinion that just is what it is i personally had more fun at worlds a lot of it because i was surrounded by you know 80 other pilots that were my age right um right. and there, you know and, and we just had a great time and when we weren't flying there was a bar on the airport and we just you know there was a ton of social activities and and all this stuff and you get to interact with people from all over the world and my favorite part was that you learn that glider pilots are the same internationally. Yeah. They have the same sense of humor. They have the <laughs> same sort of personalities, different customs, different nuances yeah, that, right, that make yeah. it fun. But it, it was super, I, I found it very easy to socialize with, with these pilots. And I've made very, very good friends that I will have for a, a very long time. You know, and if that's her goal, fine. But that's not my goal. I'm not going to go. I don't do anything in half measures. You know, I have one more juniors uh, before I age out, uh, 2024 in Poland. You know, I'm going to do what I can to, to find a teammate in practice. And I would love a, an opportunity to do so competitively. I, I think that's what we need to do. Nave, what are your plans for the future now? I know, I know you're uh, planning on being a commercial pilot, but besides that in the soaring world, are you going to have time to keep soaring or what do you think it looks like in the next few years? Well, I certainly hope so. I'm, I'm halfway through, through trading at, uh, at, at Endeavor for a little bit. So I will be junior man and I won't have a huge, huge say in my schedule. Uh, and that just is what it is. The way the industry is now, a lot of people are coming up below me. It, it's very quickly, quickly moving up the seniority list, certainly at a, at a regional airline where where not only are people coming up below me, but people are leaving in on top. You know, they're going to right. Delta, they're going to United. You know, they're going to bigger, better things. So, yeah, I'm very optimistic with with the control of my schedule in the next two years. Nice, yeah, you have some time to soar. Beyond that, what I want to do is I want to fly contests. You know, um, my brother and I just just took control of our family's ASW twenty seven. And we've started the process of a complete top-to-bottom refinish, brand-new gel coat, brand-new interior, brand-new instrument panel, the whole nine. And we're going to race. We're here to stay. You know, I'm 22. He's 26. The older brother's 29. You know, we're, we're all contest pilots, and we've got a long, long, hopefully long career in, in racing soaring. And we're here to stay. And we, we all feel the same. We grew up with stories of, 
you know, what my grand, our grandfather has done. And, and we all want to aspire to something like that. You know, we we're all competitive. So now we're, we're, we have the, the time we have the means and, and we're going to go do some serious damage on this, this contest circuit. So that's what I want to do personally. I'm going to compete in, in whatever contest I can, but in the next two years, I would love to see this, this team flying contest get started. I've also been in contact with JP Stewart. He himself was on the junior team a couple of times. He agrees with me. He's uh, working very closely with the SSA to, to get a junior national started nice, to kind cool. of um, foster the, the next generation coming up. I mean, I'm looking at it. I'm on, I was at three contests this year, four, uh, three and a half, um, including worlds. And, you know, there, there weren't any younger pilots than me uh, at these nationals. So that's, that's a huge thing is to, to keep fostering and sponsoring younger pilots to, to get encouraged with this. And they need, they need a path that says, this is, this is what you need to do. And it, it it's an achievable goal. Um, it, it takes a special type of person to, to be able to achieve a goal without any mentors or without a path. So JP and I, our goal is, is to create a junior nationals to, to encourage youth soaring, not even nationals, but, but, but camps and regionals and nationals with, with the intent of teaching and getting getting these younger folks to a, a chance to compete against each other. You know, I wouldn't be where I'm at without the, the competitive inspiration of my peers at Harris Hill. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, at any point, there's there's a dozen junior members learning to fly. You know, that's in, in the rest of the country, that's pretty much unheard of. But, you know, there, there's a reason that I'm not the first not even the second, not even the third or fourth junior member to be a part of the junior worlds coming from Harris Hill. And we don't, we don't really do anything all that different. Uh, we, we just have it on a larger scale with everyone to with encouragement and a little bit of that, that competitive, uh, competitive fire. We uh, have done a good job of providing good role models and showing people how it's done. And that's what what I really want to do is in the next two years, I want to show people that it's doable, not for my own vanity, for my own help. You know, I, I need another one or two or three more junior pilots with me. You know, I'm a goal setter. I'm a, I'm a doer. Next time in 2024, when I go to Poland to go compete again, I need help. Otherwise, I'm not going to get a different result. So... My my goal is to to build a couple more junior pilots. See where it goes. Sounds like a good plan. Yeah, definitely super important to keep the young people and get the young people interested in soaring. And then once you know, once they're in, keep their interest in. It's you know, it could go away someday if we don't do that. All right, David. Sometimes here on the podcast, we like to pull some questions out of the hat and do our lightning round. Are you up for that? Uh yeah. You know what? Let's go for it. All right. What's the highest altitude you've ever been in a glider, and where was it? 20,000 feet uh, twice. Once in Minden, Nevada, uh, slash California, and then out of Williams. Nice. In the uh, Mendocino Mountains in Wave. If you could only pick just one, what glider port or region 
would be at the top of your bucket list of places you want to go soaring and why? The Andy Mountains in Chile. I think that would be daunting to go do. Um, the Perlin Project, they're, they're setting world records in wave out there. And that's altitude records. And I think there's some cool distance records to be, to be had out there. I'd like to go try my hand at that. P-tube, P-bag, diaper, or just try and hold it until you land? <laughs> Absolutely not diaper. Absolutely not try to hold it. No chance. Um, so my system that, that works pretty well, I grew up using Ziploc baggies and, and a window. But uh, the, okay. the current okay. P system that I have is uh, linked to the gear door. And it's a tube that goes out the, the wheel well. And it's connected okay. to me, yeah. connected to outside. And uh, you just pee and it goes away. You drop the gear, you pee and it goes away and it's spectacular. But beyond that, you know, there's there are a little bit more discreet ways to do it. But this goes beyond just peeing. This is tactical. <laughs> whenever I'm, I'm above my brothers <laughs> or whenever I'm above my buddies or anybody and I'm peeing, Oh, no. They look up, they see my gear down in in on task, and they know I'm peeing. So now it's psychological. <laughs> <laughs> so they look up, they see their, my gear down, and they know I'm peeing on them. And that messes with them. <laughs> that gets in their head, and now I have an advantage. And now, you know, now I'm going on. Oh, my. <laughs> what's, your, what's your favorite type of lift? Thermal, wave, ridge, or convergence? Um, actually I have had the opportunity to, to fly in all four. Um, so at, at Harris Hill, we have a lot of thermal and we have a lot of ridge. Uh, the ridge, ridge lift is cool. Super cool. Um, I think that, uh, the most exciting, you know, adrenaline filled flights are on the ridge. Uh, you're low to the ground, you're fast, yeah, nice. you know, that sort of thing. Um, I'm most comfortable in thermal flying, but I need the ridge to not necessarily for ridge lift, but to kind of help it, the, 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 the ground creates these hot spots based on the topography of, of where you think a thermal is going to be. And it actually influences your decisions a ton. The thermal flying school convergence. I'm not good at it's a uh, couple of my, the, my flights and convergence I've, I've fallen off quick and it's, it's super thrilling when you're on it, but then when you're off it, it's not great. Mountain wave is super cool because that like that gets you up up a pie. You know, altitude records are set. The the flights they have out of Minden, out of the Hatchapi, out there in the the Sierra Nevadas are insane. You know, thousand Ks not necessarily a a reach. It's kind of a standard, so that's awesome. But I would I would have to yeah. say thermal flying for me is my favorite. Um, it's it's dynamic. I, I get to really feel the glider and and corn of thermal, um, and in my clear navario makes little sky donuts is what we call it. It, it makes like a, right. a little three D image as you turn, uh, and it goes high and it gets higher or lower depending on uh, you know the strength of the lift. So when you when you core a thermal and it's just a solid right. sky donut and you're just going up and the variometer's going up, you know, thermaling's cool. I like I like that. If you could fly your glider at only one bank angle other than level, what would it be? 180. 
<laughs> okay, what's the strangest or most spectacular thing you've ever seen in a glider cockpit? Okay, strangest or most spectacular. I've I've circled with birds at like eighteen thousand feet, and that That's to me fun. was like, dude, like I need oxygen. What are you guys doing up here? <laughs> you know. Um, that was that was truly special to be able to circle with a bird that high. That I felt that was really really cool. What's the worst place you've landed out in, and why did it? Suck? Oh, gee, our gee. Um, so this was in my uh, my my summer of instructing at at Warner Springs. It was the the last flight of the day. I was flying a Schweitzer two thirty two, and and one of the locals wanted to show me how how their their technique to land the glider so for those that, that don't know a two a schweitzer 233 has what's called terminal velocity dive brakes so basically there are these big billboards that pop up out of the wing and you can point the nose straight down at the ground with these spoilers these dive brakes out and you will not exceed v and e so right you you can come in really really high pull full spoiler and dive straight down and you're going to make the airport just fine Right. So that was the goal. He wanted to show me how to do that. The the back seat of the two thirty two, any club that has them does rides for two, so they put two people in the back, just for an idea how of, yep, of how right. wide the cockpit is. In this particular flight, it was just me, and I was in the back, and the instructor was in the front, or the other instructor was in the front, and uh, we we had all the flight controls in, and we we go up, and the tow pilot tows us straight out, and I'm not really paying enough attention it's the end of a long day dehydrated tired you know whatever excuses you want to make i release and we're in some pretty substantial sink and i turn back to the airport and you see it way up on your site picture and it's just oh you know um and you just know that you're not going to make it back we're looking down at this point like Oh, gee, what we, what we should have done is just not released. You know, this this whole situation was a mistake. But um, should have not released. Should have stayed on the tow plane. Should have waited till we were in a comfortable position to before we released. You know, it's something that I tell my students every time. You know, look left, look right. Not just for traffic, but for your situation. Where are you? Do you actually want to release? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I didn't do that. We, we get caught in the sink, and I'm looking around, and I'm seeing nothing but, you know, wilderness trees and vineyards. And it's like, oh my goodness gracious, this is not, this is not great. And the first field I picked was a vineyard. And uh, I thought, well, that's not great. That's not, the glider's not walking away from that. But, you know, it's the best field that I saw. And I saw a better field out in the corner of my eye. And it looked like I had enough. So I, I made it a sharp turn to the left to go there. And I did straight into the landing. The, the co-pilot is, uh, he's calling out obstacles and wires and trees and all that stuff and we land and uh glide is perfectly okay nothing broken uh but the uh nice the field was not more than 300 feet barbed wire fence to barbed wire fence Mm. and uh it was it was uh quite dodgy we got it down or i got it down and got it in and, and got it stopped before anything happened and it was uh, it wasn't my smoothest landing, but it was it got it done. It, it wasn't until they had come to pick us up that, and you know, these guys are like, 
holy cow, how did he do this? You know, that sort of thing. It wasn't until then that it was like, all right, this was, this was sketchy. I, I, I don't want anything to do with something like this ever again. I got lucky. Short field, not a full pattern in, a, in an abbreviated situation. It, it was a, a recipe for something far worse than it then had happened. Yeah. But, uh, no, that was the, uh, that was the worst land out. The, all my, all my other ones have been a bit more premeditated, a little bit more prepared, better fields, that sort of thing. If you had to pick one thing for lower hour glider pilots and they're trying to learn how to thermal more efficiently and effectively, what would be your advice to them? Oh, see, this is a much more, much more fun question I get to answer. (laughs) (laughs) No. So, uh, the biggest thing that I see new soaring pilots, new glider pilots, they, they miss up on is they're doing too much, probably flying too fast. They're probably circling too fast. But what I've seen a lot is they're making too many corrections per circle. You need to give the glider time. You need to give the air time to see if your adjustment worked, right? So if every three seconds you're making adjustment, all you're doing is increasing the drag on your airplane because anytime you move the flight controls, it's increased drag. So you're only hurting yourself. This is uh, something Garrett Willett taught me is uh, I make two corrections a turn uh, and I change my angle of bank from 30 degrees to 45 degrees. At the, the peak high, the peak anticipated max of the thermal, I increase my bank to 45 degrees. At the peak low, I decrease it to 30. And I, and I do two adjustments per circle, one every 180 degrees or so, until I find myself in the core. And if you do it right, it shouldn't take but a couple turns. Now that comes with a kind of big caveat is that your airspeed is consistent. You know, there are are yeah. two things that changes that change our radius of turn in in aircraft. It's airspeed and bank angle. So if you can't hold your airspeed constant, you don't really know what your radius of turn is. So because yeah. we all we know is relative, we don't really know how big our circles are. I mean, there's documentation out there that says that. Yeah, but exactly. That's not really relevant to when we circle. We know is more or less, and we know if we're bigger turn radius where that's going to put us and then we can tighten it up and kind of make a lateral motion motions that way. But if our airspeed's all over the place and our angle of banks all over the place, we certainly, if we're high up, we don't really have any sort of reference to what the aircraft's doing. We don't know what the glider's doing. And until we can figure that out, you're, you're going to suffer in the thermoid. Money, no object, and you could only spend it on a glider. What dream glider would you buy and what do you like about it? Money, no object. I think that I would be buy, I'd get um, a JS3, maybe probably an Arcus and some fun open class ship. Okay. Your favorite glider port accommodations, tent, RV, or local motel. All right. Car camping. Favorite glider port combination. I have a a Volkswagen Passat that uh, anybody who's been to a contest with me knows that I take it i treat it like an all four-wheel drive atv i i have slept in that passat for half a dozen contests but uh depth so that that suppose that's a i'd more attribute that to camping because it doesn't quite have the amenities that an rv has right but right um i definitely got to be on field you know we don't go to these races just to race if we want to go to these races to soar we all be living in minden right if that's what we wanted but we go right (laughs) 
<laughs> we we go to socialize to be a part of the community and i think there's an aspect of that that you miss if you you travel off campus sometimes you have a bit too much chocolate milk and you can't quite drive home so so staying on on fields <laughs> is uh is a must for me all right i have one last question for you shoot you get back to your pad after a long day of cross country soaring in the summer mm-hmm. first thing you do take a shower Drink a cold beverage of choice. Look at your flight trace and start making notes of what you did wrong, or flop on the bed and take a nap <laughs> while still wearing a bucket hat. Um, <laughs> so if, if I have a good crew, it's family tradition, hair seal tradition. When you land, that they uh, they'll catch your wing with a beer. So nice. First things first, we're <laughs> we're relaxing. You know, it was a long, hard, stressful day. You deserve to treat yourself. We're getting the glider safe, getting it off the runway. We're getting it in the box. We're tying it out. But as soon as I'm done with that, I am going to the SSA website and I'm pressing refresh a thousand times until everybody's score is up and you get to see how you did. Maybe take a nap, maybe take a shower. I don't know. All that stuff's pretty low when you're sleeping in your car. Showers, showers, aren't, the, <laughs> right. showers aren't quite the top priority at that point. Yeah. But uh, yeah, definitely uh, I'm, I'm refreshing. I'm checking the scores, seeing how I did. David, you know, we always like to give our guests a chance to thank anyone that's been instrumental in their aviation journey. I know you have a huge family history soaring in aviation, but would you like to, who would you like to give a shout out to? Um, there, honestly, Chuck, there, there are so many people that have helped me out. I, I would like to, to give a specific shout out to Harris Hill as a, as an organization. It's a very special operation. You know, it's, it's, one of the oldest. It's got the museum. It's uh, iconic. It's a short, short runway. You're taking off and you get over the crest of the hill and you're a thousand feet up already. But that's, you know, the plot of land isn't what makes it special. It's the people there that help with the training. It's almost all volunteer in that is in that group is my family that that have helped me so much. But, but people like Heinz Weisenbuehler, Hotel Whiskey, the people like Tim Wells, he's one of the, been huge in, in my flying Andy Brer. These are all people that have helped me in my my cross country journey, and then uh, all the people that that have taken me in when I I've been out doing uh, summer jobs. Like I said, I, I did uh, I spent a summer in uh, Warner Springs and then San Diego County, California, with the the Willets, Garrett and Boyd Willett as an instructor out there, and what I've learned out there, soaring techniques, mountain techniques, convergence stuff. And the people at Williams Soaring, the Mays family, up the, just north of Sacramento, California. And uh, they, they, they own Clarinet and do all that stuff. And I worked for them this spring as a tow pilot, instructor, ride pilot. And, you know, they're, they're some of the kindest people that, uh, that I've met. And uh, even though I was working for them, it'd be uh, 2 o'clock on a great soaring day. And they say, you know what? Noel would come out, the, the matriarch. Uh, she'd come out and say, David, you're done for the day. Go take this 24. I don't want to see you for a couple hours. And, um, you know, even though I was there supposed to be helping them nice. out, uh, they, they saw people just get it, you know, and she'd come out and yell at me for working and tell me to go play. And I think that's, that's pretty unique to, to soaring as a sport. Um, like I said, it's out of passion. We're all here to have fun because we want to be here. So, uh, I, I've gotten help from all over the place. Uh, too many names to name. It's a good problem to have, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. David, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I definitely appreciate you taking your time to tell your story. And, and uh, maybe one of these days I'll make it up to Harris Hill. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you know, it's a it's a unique place to, to soar. It's been a pleasure being on here. Uh, and and one last thing I do want to say for for anybody that's that that listened to this and and uh, agrees with me that we need to do better uh, as a country in, in competition soaring. Uh, I would like a for you guys to, to find a way to reach out to me and uh, I need names. Um, you know, the, the process for, for getting a team flying contest going is uh, I need to, to get a list of people who support me, a list of supporters, and I need to go to the contest committees. And I, I'm working on a location to host the contest, uh, most likely Harris Hill. So, you know, who knows, Chuck, that might be a great time for you to come up and, and check out soaring. You know, anyone who, who is interested in that, you know, I can leave my number with Chuck one way or another. And uh, I'd love to facilitate that. If you have an email, I can put that in the show notes. Contact will do that. And then they can click on that and get a hold of you. Absolutely. I would uh, I would greatly appreciate that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We'll do that. Thank you very much. This uh, I've, I've enjoyed it. And uh, I'd love to be back on if, if the need arises. Absolutely. We uh, were famous for getting in touch with some of our guest pilots from the past and catching up with them. So, yeah, love to have you back on. All right, cool. Thank you much. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America. And they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. Laura, welcome to Soaring the Sky. So happy to have you today. How are you? Hi, Chuck. Thank you for the invitation. Um, yeah, I'm fine. And And you? I'm doing great. Absolutely welcome. Good to have you. So, Laura, can you tell us how your soaring journey started? Um, yeah, I started gliding in 2018. Um, so I was 21 years old. And I think I relatively late compared to other pilots. <laughs> like many, I was simply taken to the airfield. And after my first uh, takeoff on the winch, I really wanted to learn. So one of the things I saw reading your bio was that last year you were OLC's Rookie of the Year. Congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. I mean, obviously, you did a lot of flying during that time. Can you tell us a little about those flights and how you earned the title? Mm, yeah, all those um, who have not um, yet flown 300 kilometer in a single seat or are in the rookie ranking. And the best three flights will be scored. In the year 2021, I had a total of um, 1,500 points with the three flights counted. Um, that put me in the fifth place in Germany. Um, and in addition to the three uh, champions, the title Rookie of the Year will be awarded. Um, it's a, a jury decision with a specification um, junior, you will see um, smiley and um, yeah, eligible. And um, my best fly in the ranking was 518 kilometer with the LS1. On that day, um, the only good conditions were in the Black Forest. Yeah, and <laughs> it was a very nice fly. Com 
completely relaxed, high base, strong thermos, um, and I had an average speed of 19.6 kilometer per hour, which is not bad for an LS1 in Germany. Um, yeah. And this was my first cross-country as a country flying season. <laughs> wow. So can you tell us a little bit more about the LS1? It's obviously not a super high-performance glider, but you managed to fly an 860-kilometer flight. That's pretty amazing. How did you accomplish that flight, and what do you like about the LS1? Yeah, um, the weather was uh, the day very good. I had declared a 500-kilometer out and return task, and I had um, completed the task by early afternoon and uh, was still able to fly 360 kilometer in the Black Forest. And um, yeah, I think you can only do that with a plane you really feel comfortable on. And uh, the LS1 is a great glider. Is uh, It is a club class, single seat glider, manufactured in Germany by Roland Schneider. And um, it was built around 1970 and has a glide ratio of 38. And the rudder tuning is great and the rudder forces are very smooth. It's pretty or it's, yeah, she doesn't like rain and mosquitoes. But <laughs> although the... <laughs> LS1 gives good feedback um, and in there are good instruments. <laughs> so, so yeah. far, what has been your most interesting, fun or challenging flight? Oh, <laughs> I have, um, I've had a lot of interesting flights. Mostly I'm lucky and <laughs> I'm never um, really low, but I flew once in the wave and the clouds below me closed in. Then I flew um, under the cloud cover and um, partly flew home in the slope wind. Yeah, that was exciting. Now, this year you were actually able to compete in the Women's German Championship. Can you tell us about that, how that race went and what you learned from it? Yeah, this was my first competition and I was able to qualify through the DMST points. Um, and all in all, competition flying has many advantages. Uh, you always have a team to support you. You always have a tow pilot. Uh, you get a perfect weather briefing from experts. But um, I think the challenge is completely different um, in competition flying to the free flying. Um, in free track, the goal is to fly as far as possible. So I make sure that I maintain a certain altitude. Um, in competition flying, I want to fly um, a task as fast as possible. And that was a change for me. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to keep flying even in the good conditions and not uh, return. <laughs> <back>. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Here on the podcast, you know, we like to spend some time talking about safety. So, so far in your soaring journey, what have you learned that you think could help others be safer pilots? Yeah, um, after my license, I flew very carefully and I didn't um, dare to fly away from my home place. Um, many people said, you just have to dare. <laughs> but I did that once and it was very unpleasant. Um, that's why I didn't rush into anything and took the time I needed. 
And I decided to fly from airfield to airfield first, and then the cross-country flying came automatically. I think you don't have to stress yourself, and um, if you fl fly a lot, it comes automatically. Well, I think those are wise words for sure. Laura, we always like to give our guests an opportunity to thank the people that have helped them along the way, of course, in their aviation journey. So would you like to thank anyone? Yeah, um, I would like to thank Wolfgang Wagner, from whom I was able to learn a lot of uh, a lot about cross-country flying. And a thank you to all the um, tower pilots, launch helpers and retrievers. Laura, what are your plans for gliding in the future? Um, I would like to fly more than 900 kilometers in the club class glider. And I want to gain more um, competition experience. <laughs> Well, we're going to keep an eye on it and uh, we'll check in with you later, of course. <laughs> Laura, thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing your story today. Thank you, Chuck. Um, it was fun chatting with you. Hi, everyone. Sergio from Sorry Master here. Today, we're going to talk about a hidden enemy of our cross-country speed, deviations. I believe most pilots have already heard about the 20-degree rule during cross-country flying of only intercepting lift sources within a 20-degree cone to either side from our flight track. But why is that? When we analyze deviations from our intended track, we must take into account the distance flown towards the new objective and the distance back to track. This resultant additional distance flown is very dependent on the angle of track. The more degrees off track a deviation is, the more it will cost you. And if you do the math, the distance increase due to deviations up to 10 degrees off track is negligible of only 3%, but things start to change from 20 degrees onwards. A 20 degree deviation will cost you a 13% increase in distance flown, and it represents a threshold because from there onwards the extra distance will become significant a 25 degree off track deviation will make you fly 21% more almost double from the 20 degrees extra distance just as a comparison a 45 degree deviation will add 82% to the distance from from a to b it's almost like adding another leg in terms of distance. This extra distance will most probably offset any gains from higher climb rates found off track. So when flying, only intercept lift sources within a 20 degree cone to either side. But this math will only be valid if you make one of these 20 degrees deviations and return to track. If you keep on endlessly deviating, you incur an even greater extra distance flown, and this will slow you down, because in the end, you will have flown much more than you should. When post-analyzing your flights, start monitoring your deviation percentage and focus when flying on reducing it to the absolute minimum. During a cross-country flight, keep intercepting any cloud wisps or lift sources within a 10 degree cone to either side. 
the extra distance will be negligible and by doing that you will be able to greatly improve your effective glide ratio and improve your cross-country speed. But leave the interception sources 20 degrees off track to one or two per lap so that deviations do not deplete your overall cross-country speed. 20 degree rule is valid when you are in cruise mode. Whenever you get low and you enter the critical height band for you to avoid an outlanding, any deviation becomes valid, but only in this case. And even though I have mentioned yet, before committing to any deviation, we must closely assess cloud maturity, so that when we get there, we still have an active cumulus to climb on. There's nothing worse than going that extra distance, spending the hard one and sometimes critical height you have to get to a cumulus which starts dissipating exactly when you reach it. So always assess cloud maturity. That's it guys, see you in the next episode and don't forget to follow me on Instagram at SorryMaster or check my website SorryMaster.com If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.